Good afternoon and welcome to the first general session of the 2020 IFCA Annual Convention. We're so glad that you're here joining us online. We know that it's not what we had hoped for, but we know it is what the Lord has given to us. And we're so thankful to be able to open the Word together with you on this afternoon. I'm going to ask you to take your Bible and open it up to Acts chapter 6. You know, I never tire of reading about the mighty men of David. You can find them in 2 Samuel chapter 23. They, they just inspire me. In, it says in 2 Samuel 23, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashebeth, a Tokamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800, whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. You see, when others fled in fear, the mighty men stood firm, often alone, to face the enemy with God empowering them to fight the good fight. Where are the mighty men in the church today? Oh, may God raise up many so that they might do His work in facing this world that needs Jesus. You know, as we enter into this week of concentrated time in the Word and fellowship, I want to begin by pointing out our attention to the need to capture this world for the glory of Christ. Our theme this year is taking every thought captive. And this really follows with what IFCA is all about. We are grounded in Scripture. We are advancing the cause of Christ. And you know, we advance as we take back ground from the enemy, as we snatch souls out of the fires of hell, as we destroy strongholds of the evil one. And you know, to do this, we cannot run. We have to stand firm. We must be like the mighty men. Read with me Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. 8 through 15 reads this way. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Syrians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. 
And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was the face of an angel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for men like Stephen and David's mighty men, other great and godly men and women of the faith who have gone before us, who have stood firm in the face of adversity, who have not run, who have not hidden themselves, who have not cowered, who have not compromised. O oh Lord God, there are some still alive today in the church that are this way. We pray that you would multiply them and that their numbers would increase. We ask you as we begin this week, as we begin taking captive every thought, our own as well as those within our society and culture, throughout our world, we pray, Lord God, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us by your word and spirit, that you would spur us to move forward, and that you would stir up in us a holy fire as we understand how you have already equipped your church to do what you've called us to do, that we are not to be fearful, that we are not to run, we are not to hide, we are not to be silent, but this is the time for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine brightest in the deep darkness of our world today. Oh Lord God, do your mighty work through your mighty spirit and your mighty word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now I turn your attention to our brother Stephen here, who is described in this chapter as being a man full of spirits and wisdom in verse 3, full of faith in verse 5, full of grace and power in verse 8. He is a man who stands firm. In verses 8 and following, going all the way into chapter 7, we find that Stephen was involved not only in the internal life of the Christian community, but also in its external life and witness. In other words, Stephen was not only a churchman, but he was an evangelist. He didn't just love God and love God's people. He loved the world in which he lived because he saw that they needed Jesus. And that compelled him to go out into that world. As the commentator R.C.H. Lenski has written, the congregation had made him a deacon. The Lord made something far greater out of him. In verses 8 and 9 of our passage, we find that Stephen does so much more than simply serve tables. He went out into the city. And with the power of of that Spirit of God that he had been given, he began doing great signs and wonders among the people. Since the purpose of signs and wonders, we know, is for the verification of the messenger and his message, we must also conclude that the people that are referred to here, among which those signs and wonders were done, were not Christians within the church, but among the unbelieving population in Jerusalem, following, of course, the pattern of the apostles who would do some great signs and wonders, and then as a crowd would gather, they would testify to the resurrected Jesus. 
Apparently, Stephen's words were received with great effect because verse 9 tells us that his teaching caught the attention of those within that Hellenistic Jewish community, a group that he himself had formerly been a part of. Verse 9 says that those who were members of the synagogue of the freedmen, of the Syrians, the Alexandrians, the Cilicians, and Asians, they all rose up against Stephen. They rose up for the purpose of refuting what he was saying. And because this verse is notoriously difficult to figure out, scholars are in disagreement about exactly the number of synagogues that are involved in this dispute with Stephen. The number that's been suggested has ranged from one synagogue where everybody was all together in it to five synagogues where every single group had their own meeting place. And the best answer that I've found is that there were probably three groups represented there in verse 9. The synagogue of the freedmen was one, the synagogue of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians is another, and the Cilicians and Asians made up a third synagogue. Now you need to know this, the, the freedmen were a group of Jews taken by the Roman general Pompey as prisoners of war from Israel to Rome. Later they were released and given the rights of freed men. These men and their children would have worn that title as a badge of honor. Cyrene and Alexandria, those are places on the northern coast of Africa. And then Cilicia and Asia were on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Both would have been what is today the modern nation of Turkey. Now, all three of these groups were Jewish, but their languages and cultures would have been mixed with a Hellenistic background. But you need to know this. This is critically important for our understanding of this passage. Is that these groups, these synagogues, these Hellenistic Jews that have come out and stood against our man Stephen here were not liberal Jews. Rather, the opposite was true. These men and women would have been fiercely loyal to Judaism and to the temple and to the law. Many of the dispersion Jews would have come back to live in Jerusalem because of their deep love and their reverence for their homeland and faith. And this is probably the spark that, that set this whole situation ablaze. In verse 9, as Stephen is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to his Hellenist neighbors, many of these devout people would have seen this as an attack upon the faith that they held so dear. Walter Elwell, in his commentary, says, their fellow Hellenists, Stephen, is preaching things that they perceive to be embarrassing for them, for they desire acceptance on the part of the Jerusalem Jews, who eye them with suspicion enough. But this faithful servant of the Lord, this man of God who will stand firm for Christ, knew that his people needed to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So whether it was just one synagogue or five synagogues or something in between, there is an uproar and the whole group of Hellenistic Jews sought to put Stephen back into his place by setting up a debate in which they hoped to demonstrate the flaws and the errors of Christianity 
because they knew that the people that were listening to Stephen might be persuaded, might be convinced of Stephen's words. But look at verse 10 with me. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. What happened? They couldn't stop him. They couldn't refute him. They couldn't silence him. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, We have the mind of Christ. Now many of you know that. You know that passage. But I wonder how many of us actually believe that. We as Christians have the ability to oppose the greatest minds in human history with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter what sort of education that you have, because we have the mind of Christ. And here we see proof of this. You know, we don't know anything about Stephen's background at all. We don't know about his education. We don't know much else. But we do know that he stumped these men from the synagogue. And as you continue to read into chapter 7, he enrages the Sanhedrin, including the high priest, and every scholar or scribe among them. How is that possible? Because Stephen was a spirit-filled man who knew his Bible. That's a powerful combination. Making a defense of the faith is a responsibility that every single Christian must take seriously. We've just seen it in this passage. Stephen was able to answer his critics because they sought to deny the Christian faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, recently I've been rereading Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There, and Schaeffer has a solid grasp on what is happening in the world. And his insight is still profoundly proving true today, even many decades later. In his observation of the decline of society as it's seen in philosophy and the arts, Schaefer implores the church with these words. Schaefer writes, These paintings, these poems, and these demonstrations which we've been talking about are the expression of men who are struggling with their appalling lostness. Dare we laugh at such things? Dare we feel superior when we view their tortured expressions of their arts? Christians should stop laughing and take such men seriously. Then we shall have the right to speak again to our generation. These men are dying while they live. Yet where is our compassion for them? There is nothing more ugly than a Christian orthodoxy without understanding or without compassion. You know, we can apply Dr. Schaefer's words today. How can we hope to engage with the world if we either run away, hiding in our little enclaves, our little churches our little christian ghettos hiding from the world like ostriches sticking our heads into the sand or thinking that posting internet memes and angry rants on social media will somehow change anything 
How can we be careful not to throw out the biblical mandates of compassion and mercy and grace found within the Gospel and held forth in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus while at the same time holding firm against the philosophies that would drag us down into a sentimental and emotionally driven abandonment of truth. We must stand firm for Christ. But we cannot hide in our churches anymore. We cannot hide in our suburbs We cannot leave the cities to rot in their decaying states. The Lord God Almighty sent Jonah to the Assyrians. He sent Noah to a world that would be flooded by him to preach righteousness. He sent Lot to Sodom and Gomorrah. He sent the apostles into the world. And he is still sending his church. He sends us as sheep among the wolves. We must be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, but we must go. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10.5 reminds us of our theme. It is where it was taken from. We destroy arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This passage teaches us some very important realities about the need for us to stand firm in our faith for Christ. Now, I'm not going to cover this passage in great detail. Others are going to do so. But I want to show you how Paul's words to the church in Corinth and to us today, by the application of God's Word, rang true in the experience of our Spirit-filled man, Stephen. Because What Stephen does is exactly what Paul says we must do. So let's start with this. What is our goal? Number one, what is our goal? And I'll tell you this. Paul tells us, the rest of the Scriptures tell us, that it is to be changed minds and hearts. That's our goal. Changed minds and hearts. Paul's goal is the same as ours as we speak to unbelievers. It is obedience to Christ. When we preach the gospel, we are calling for what Psalm 2.12 says. It says, kiss the Son, or pay homage to the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Christ is our Savior. He is our King. And every person needs to submit not only their lives, but their very thoughts and desires to Christ. You know, back in the Garden of Eden, going all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, to the beginning of mankind, before the fall of humanity into sin, the serpent brought doubt into the thoughts of the woman. And in chapter 3, verse 1, we see that she begins to think. And Satan opposed God. He introduced this doubt. But Eve's response is important. She didn't immediately reject the Word of God. This is what it says in Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw 
that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We have the woman standing as the judge of what is true and what is error. Eve foolishly thought that she's weighing the truthfulness of God's words and the serpent's words. She stands back and she thinks of what, what the Lord God had told her. And then she comes with the serpent's words and she tries to decide on her own, assuming that she is the judge of truth. She put herself in the place of the lawgiver as the judge over God. She asked herself, why should I just listen to God? I can think for myself. I can see plainly what is true. And as she considers the facts, as she saw them, she took of the fruit and she ate. And then she offered it to her husband. Eve set herself up as the ultimate judge between God's words and Satan's words. And that's exactly what we see. As Stephen testifies to the rebellious hearts of the Jewish leaders in Acts chapter 7. Now, we have no time to do this. But I would highly encourage you to read and study Stephen's speech or his sermon in chapter 7 all on your own look for the logical pattern look for the flow of his argument it's very clear stephen is pointing out to the sanhedrin that god has providentially in his own wisdom selected and guided the jewish people for his sovereign purposes as he reveals them through abraham and then isaac and then jacob and then joseph and moses and yet, these men that he stands before, this Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, as he stands before them, they have put themselves in judgment over God. Especially when they crucified Christ. And now they intend to do the same to him. Look at what it says in Acts 7, <clears throat> verses 51 to 53. Stephen says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There in verse 51, Stephen calls them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. They show in their stubbornness that they did not know God, but instead wanted to rule over God. Calvin said that men who act in this way seek to measure all things, quote, by the yardstick of their own carnal stupidity. 
So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, when Paul says that his objective and likewise our objective is obedience to Christ, he is talking about destroying the whole sinful, rebellious worldview of the unbeliever and bringing it into submission to Christ. And that should be our goal too. We want changed minds and changed hearts. I want to see the end of injustice. I want to see people love one another. I want to see murder and poverty go away. But that will not come until the gospel comes and changes the hearts and minds of people. And it will only culminate when King Jesus establishes His throne in the millennium and rules with a rod of iron. Is that your goal? To change the hearts and the minds of people with the gospel? Why does your church, why does your ministry even exist? For what end? Does it seek to break down the fortress of error and deception and promote the truth of the Word of God? Because I'll tell you this, nothing Absolutely nothing is as long-lasting and eternity-changing as this. And if changing hearts and minds is not your goal, it should be. So this is our goal. Let me ask you secondly, what is our methodology? What is our methodology? And it's this. We fight error with truth. We fight error with truth. How did Stephen bring such a devastating blow to the leaders of the synagogue and the Sanhedrin? The answer is as simple as it is devastating. Stephen battled their error with the truth of the Word of God. It's simple, but it demolishes strongholds. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it reminds us that we don't fight with carnal fleshly weapons now that doesn't mean just simply guns and bombs and airplanes that also means we don't fight with humanistic philosophy and ideology and politics and all of those other isms we fight the logismos the ideologies and philosophies and doctrines of demons all error in whatever form it comes in with the truth of the word of god the weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. And it means that the fortresses, the fortresses of the best of this world's wisdom will crumble at the trumpet blast of the wisdom of God found in the Bible. Nothing can stand against it. Nothing. Nothing. In Matthew 7, 29, Jesus was described this way. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, Jesus didn't quote rabbis. As all rabbis did. Jesus spoke as the Son of God. 
And as he did so, his words demolished their arguments. Jesus didn't just hold opinions. He spoke truth. He quoted Scripture. It is written. He didn't take political polls. He didn't stick his finger and check where the winds of change were moving. He opened his mouth and spoke God's words. And as one person has written, the word of the Lord is self-attestingly true and authoritative. It is the criterion we must use in judging all other words. Thus, God's word is unassailable. It must be rock, the rock-bottom foundation of our thinking and living. It is our presuppositional starting point. All our reasoning must be subordinated to God's word, for no man is in a position to reply against it. And any who contend with God will ha- end up having to answer him. You know, 2 Corinthians 10.5, it tells us the battle plan, and it's pretty clear. Destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. You know, the version of lies and deception constantly changes. The isms and philosophies come and go. But the word of our God brings down all these errors. How do you combat error? How do you destroy lies and deception? I'll tell you how we do it. You drag it out into the light, kicking and screaming. You expose it to the truth. One Bible commentator writes this, the objective of our warfare is to change how people think so the person is no longer captive to a damning ideology, but captive to the obedience of Christ. Stephen, just like Jesus, brought the truth to the people. And you know what? They didn't like it. As a matter of fact, they hated it so vehemently that they killed Stephen too. Do you remember what I said about Eve and her desire to be the judge of what is true? All fallen men want to be this way. They want to argue. They want to debate about what is true and what is not. They've even invented the foolish idea that you can have your truth and I can have my truth and our truths can be different and yet somehow compatible. But when you begin to demolish strongholds of wicked rebellion, many people won't like it. They will continue to hang on to their illogical and inconsistent ideas, to their rebellion against God, their Creator, even though you have shown them their error. And as one pastor has written, spiritual warfare is an ideological conflict fought in the mind by assaulting the proud fortresses of ideas that sinners erect against the truth. It doesn't matter how many times you tell them that God has made man, male and female. And doesn't matter how much science and logic and every other truth that points to the truth of Scripture says, they will cling to their ideology that you cannot be right, not because of truth, but because they hold to a wicked and demonic ideology in rebellion to God. And that brings us to an important point. It's that our opponents are those who are deceived and in darkness. 
Who are our opponents? They're those that have been deceived. They are in darkness. Why couldn't these brilliant scholars of the Scriptures oppose Stephen? Have you stopped to think about that? I mean, he took on these synagogues. I mean, not a person in the synagogue. He took on all these synagogues. And then they dragged him over to the Council of the Seventy, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Court, the Supreme Court of Judaism, if you will. And they're all stumped. Just as they had been with Jesus when he was 12. How did that happen? Even assuming that Stephen was equally trained, which I seriously doubt he was, he was one man against a multitude of Israel's brightest minds. But we have to have the right view of what the mind of the unbeliever is like. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 17 to 19, it describes the mind of all unbelievers. It says this, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, did you catch all that the Bible says of their minds? Their minds, their hearts, and their understandings are futile, darkened, ignorant, alienated from God, the source of all truth, hard-hearted, callous, and impure. Talk about a serious handicap. Those who do not know Christ are in darkness and are blind to the truth. They have suppressed their knowledge of God and His law, and so they have also suppressed their ability to truly know anything. And although the unbeliever can and does know factual information, Things like math and imperial sciences. He does so only because he borrows from and depends upon the truth of God's creation. He utilizes the mind and he utilizes the worldview of Christianity, truth that he himself denies. But even what unbelieving man knows he still distorts. I'll give you a great example of the brilliant atheistic theoretical physicist and cosmologist by the name of Dr. Stephen Hawking. We are each free to believe what we want, and it is my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created the universe. And no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven and no afterlife either. 
We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe. And for that, I am extremely grateful. And I ask Dr. Hawking, to whom are you grateful? You see, even though Hawking has seen some truth, he has done so without coming to the appropriate conclusions. He has done so using the very brain that God, by His common grace, has given him. That same God that he so stridently denies even exists. But what about our man of God? What about Stephen? How did he know what to say? Well, again, let me quote 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 16. It puts the two side by side for comparison. It says the natural person, the man or woman who does not know God, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. The Bible that you hold in your hands is the revelation and the knowledge of the living God. Oh, it is more than we can handle. And it overcomes the wisdom of this world. But we must know it. We must obey it. We must stand firm on it. We must proclaim it. We must shout into the darkness that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And that lost men, driven to and fro in the sea of worldly ideologies and philosophies, they give no hope and give no answers. That these lost men can find abundant life if they will come to Jesus, the Lamb of God. Dr. Stephen Hawking does not even know if there is a heaven and if there is an afterlife. And he denies that there is a God. But all of these things exist beyond the shadow of a doubt, not because of his opinion, but because God himself, the maker of heaven and earth, has told us in his word, and we can know beyond a shadow of doubt, and even if the most brilliant scientists in the world do not believe that, one day they will know it is true. One day they will bow the knee and say that Jesus is Lord. Brothers and sisters, let me challenge you. Don't fear the growing darkness of our world. Speak into it the light of the gospel. Stand firm and stand boldly upon the rock of Christ. He will never give way. We've been called to take every thought captive under Christ. And so let us pick up the gospel banner and wave it high. Jesus is King. This is our Father's world. And one day, He will make all things new. And until then, we will never surrender. We will stand faithful to the end. 
we will engage, we will reason, we will plead with sinners to be reconciled to Christ. Won't you join us? Let's take every thought captive in this world and bring it in submission to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful as we anticipate the time that we will spend in your word. As we gather together here virtually, rejoicing in our salvation, knowing that your word is sufficient, that your gospel is the power of God and the salvation to those who would believe. We rejoice that our security rests not in what we have done, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is by faith in you alone, by your grace alone, in Christ alone, that we shall be saved. We know, Lord God, that on the day when you call us to be home with you, when we close our eyes in death, or we come to meet you in the clouds, that you will accept us in because of the finished work of Christ, the blood that has washed us clean. We have confidence in that. And in this life, Lord God, as we await your return, you're coming for us in the clouds or for us to shut our eyes when we have finished the good fight. We pray, Lord God, that you would keep us busy. Help us to be like the early church in the book of Acts, courageous and bold, praying for greater courage and greater boldness, that we would see the church grow and multiply, that people would come to know Jesus Christ and would be discipled and would continue to spread all over the world. We cannot do this in ourselves. We desperately need the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would help us to humbly submit before you our desperate need. We pray, Lord God, that we would not go out in this world with worldly weapons. We would not assume the worldly ideologies and philosophies of the world so that we can do what they do in a Christian way. But instead, Lord God, may we be distinctly the people of God. May we distinctly be the church, looking nothing like the world, being set apart in both our holiness and in the way that we do things according to your word. Give us this courage. Give us this strength. Give us this boldness that we would stand firm, grounded on the scriptures, and we would advance the cause of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And on that day, when you call us home, that we would look around and see all those people taken captive by the gospel, just as we were. And we would rejoice that you have saved us, saved us from our sin, saved us from this dark and dying world, saved us as a people for yourself, that in eternity future we will stand before your throne and cast our crowns at your feet. And that we will rejoice and worship you. Those who were once rebels. Those that hated you in our thoughts and deeds. But now have been called children of the living God. Sons and daughters of the King. Rejoicing at your throne. Singing praises and hallelujah to you. Oh Lord God, keep us mindful of that day. 
remind us that we are pilgrims, aliens and strangers in this world, and that this is not our home. We belong to you. So help us to fight the good fight of the faith. For Jesus' sake. It's in his name that we pray and ask all these things.